Good morning, Grace. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. And we'll be uh, several other places. Roman, uh, Romans 5 also will be in Psalm 139 if you want to turn there. All the notes, the pictures and things will be on later this week if you don't catch everything. Um, if you're visiting, we're, we started a series actually in January uh, called Deep Things, Delighting in the Triune God. And we've been looking at the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we've kind of been camped out on God the Son, looking at Jesus Christ, looking at his incarnation. And what does that mean for us as human beings? What does that mean for us to live in a human body? What are the implications? And that's kind of where we're at right now in our series. So... Let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, thank you so much that your love never fails, that the greatest proof of your love was the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ. As we direct our hearts and minds this morning to think about that, would you, by your spirit, uh, cause us to understand what it means that Jesus came to this earth to fix what the first man, Adam, broke. Help us now for your glory by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What do we mean when we say that the word became flesh? What do we mean when we say that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh? What do we mean when we say that he was made up of and had bones and muscles and tissue and a spleen and hair and fingernails and toes and ears and tongue and teeth? What do we mean when we say that Jesus became flesh? What does flesh mean? Does flesh mean fully and completely human or does flesh mean merely human with Flesh, blood, bone, nose, elbows, and feet. Or does flesh mean like the apostles John and Paul when they use the word flesh in the Bible to describe sin, the sinful nature, that aspect of humanity that is in rebellion and opposed to God, living in disobedience. What do we mean when we say that Jesus became flesh? When we say that Jesus took on human flesh, we do not mean, we do not mean that he had a sinful nature like us fallen human beings. We do not mean that when Paul uses that and John uses that to describe the sinful nature, we are not saying that Jesus was a sinner. He was just like us, except he was without sin. So what do we mean when we say with John 1.14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? That's what we're going to look at today and talk about today as we examine one of the three Christological heresies that arose in the early church as the church tried to understand what did it mean that Jesus became a human being. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the other two. Here's our big idea for today. Sin dehumanized you. Sin, when Adam sinned in the garden so many years ago, sin dehumanized you. Surely that's Paul's point 
which Greg has already read in Romans 5, 18 through 19, when he speaks of Adam's one sin and what that did to all of humanity contrasted with the perfect life of Jesus Christ. So let's look at God's word again in Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Hear the words of the Lord. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam, the very first human being created by God, was a perfect human being before he sinned. But his sin changed him and every other human being. Adam's sin dehumanized human beings. As human beings, we are not like Adam and Eve before they sinned. We have been dehumanized thanks to Adam. And the church in the fourth century tried to come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ became a human being. They knew that humans were dehumanized by sin, by Adam's sin, so they struggled to understand how Jesus could become a human being because in their eyes, anyone who was a human being had been dehumanized by Adam's sin. So in the fourth century, Christians were reading their Bibles like the church always has, and they began wrestling with these very questions. They believed John 1.14 that says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but they were trying to understand what did it mean that the word became flesh since every human being made up of flesh is a sinner. How could Jesus become a human being since all human beings are sinners? You see, the churches in the 4th century all believed in Jesus. They had accepted Jesus into their proverbial hearts. I put that in quotes because I don't like the terminology, ask Jesus into your heart. But we'll roll with it for now, okay? But the question for the 4th century, and the question for us is, which Jesus did you accept into your heart? There are a lot of Jesuses out there. Have you accepted the Christian Christ into your heart? I mean, it's hunky-dory that you accepted Jesus into your heart, but I want to know which one. Which Jesus did you accept into your heart? In the 4th century, there were several understandings of who Jesus was, just like there are today. What the church must always do is understand what the Bible says about Jesus and make sure it's that Jesus that we believe and trust in. Make sure it's that Jesus that we ask into our proverbial hearts. So in the fourth century, the church began to address several heresies that emerged concerning the humanity of Jesus, concerning the incarnation of Jesus. We'll look at one today and Lord willing, two more next week. The first one that we'll talk about is called Apollinarianism. I know that's a mouthful. Apollinarius was a man born in 315 A.D., died in 393 A.D. He came up with this idea about how Jesus became a human being. He was from Laodicea and his Christological model, how he understood that the Word became flesh, how he understood that Jesus came to this earth is known as the Logos Sarx or the Word Flesh Christology. Logos in Greek, 
means word. Sarx means flesh. So he had the word flesh Christology. Apollinarius argued that Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. He is from the Father. He's from the same essence and nature as God the Father. Just like the Council of Nicaea had put forth, which we looked at several months ago. Jesus Christ, Apollinarius said, is the Word of God. He took on flesh. But Apollinarius' understanding of Jesus taking on flesh meant just that. Jesus took on flesh human flesh. He took on the material, physical aspect of humanity. Apollinarius believed that Jesus had hair, that he had toenails, that he had teeth. And it sounds good so far, right? It does. But here's where Apollinarius went wrong. He believed that Jesus only took on human flesh, only had eyeballs, only had feet, and was only made up of flesh and bone and muscle and tissue. Apollinarius did not believe that Jesus took on the immaterial aspect of humanity, that is the human spirit or human soul or the rational mind. Remember, as we've been discussing over the last few weeks, human beings are made up of two parts, the material and the immaterial, the body and the spirit. The material is our body with our hair and toes and elbows. The immaterial part of us is our spirit or soul or heart, whatever word you want to use. Apollinarius believed that Jesus took on human flesh, that he, but he did not take on the immaterial part, the human spirit. For Apollinarius, Jesus was immaterially not a human being, but materially, bodily, physically, he was. Jesus became flesh, Apollinarius said. You could touch him, you could talk to him, you could arm wrestle him, but that was all that Apollinarius meant when he said that Jesus became flesh. For Apollinarius, Jesus was just tissue, just muscles, just blood vessels, just tendons, just skin, just hair. He was just a human being made up of the physical parts. According to Apollinarius, part of his humanity was missing. What was it? It was the immaterial part that human beings are made up of. The human spirit or soul was missing from Jesus. You see, Apollinarius believed that Jesus was 100% God, but that he was only 50% human. Apollinarius was strong in his understanding of the deity of Christ. He believed that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. He believed that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, who was from the same essence and nature as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Apollinarius gets an A-plus in his understanding of Jesus' deity, that Jesus is God. But Apollinarius flunks on his understanding of the humanity of Christ. Why? Because Apollinarius believed that Jesus did not take on the human spirit or the human soul. Jesus was fully God, Apollinarius said, but he was half human. Jesus lacked the immaterial aspect of humanity. He's part human, not fully human, Apollinarius said. Materially, yes, Jesus is human. Immaterially, Jesus is not a human. Apollinarius believed 
that Jesus was fully God, but only half human. Apollinarius believed that Christ was the Word become flesh, but not the Word become human. J. Kelly writes about Apollinarianism, the presupposition of this argument is that the divine word was substituted for the normal human psychology in Christ. So Apollinarius had what I call the Frankenstein approach to the incarnation of Jesus. Remove from Jesus the immaterial aspect of humanity and replace it with the logos, the divine word. And so here we have Apollinarius, Dr. Apollinarius in his lab. You'll notice he has Jesus strapped down to the table. He's ready to do his version of a lobotomy, remove the human spirit or rational mind, the soul from the human Jesus and replace it with the logos or the divine word. And so Apollinarius says, I get it. The word controls him like a remote controlled car. Now, why would Apollinarius believe such a thing? Why would this interpretation of John 1.14 become satisfying to Apollinarius and his followers? Why would Apollinarius believe that when the Apostle John wrote in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that John must have meant that Jesus was fully God but just half human? Why would he believe this? Several reasons. One... It is in keeping with the Council of Nicaea that stressed the full deity of Jesus Christ. So Apollinarius is spot on in his understanding that Jesus is God of the same essence and nature as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But the second reason is that Apollinarius believed if he could get rid of the full humanity of Jesus, that spiritual aspect, then he could get rid of sin. And then Jesus could become a man. Apollinarius believed that if he could get rid of the full humanity of Jesus, if he could get rid of the human soul or the human spirit, then he could get rid of sin. Why? Because in the mind of Apollinarius, if you have something fully human, then you have something fully sinful. Apollinarius believed that any time you have something that is fully human, made up of two parts, the physical and the spiritual, the immaterial and the material, the body and the spirit, any time you have something that is fully human, then you are dealing with something that is fully sinful. That's what Apollinarius believed. He equated humanity with sin. Apollinarius equated being a human being with sin. Apollinarius equated humanity with sin, and we do the same. Let me ask you, what comes to your mind when you think of humans? What comes to your mind when you think of human beings? When you think of humanity, what do you think of? What are some synonyms of humanity? The most popular evangelical answer is this, sinful. Our tendency when we think of human beings is to think of them as sinful. And that's because we're sinners and that's all we know. What most often comes to our mind when we think of humanity is that we think of humanity as sinful. 
Let me ask you then, can you have something that is fully human and not sinful? Can you have something that is fully human, made up of the two parts that human beings are made up of, the body and the spirit, the immaterial and the material? Can you have something that is fully human and have it not be sinful? Yes. Yes, you can have something that is fully and completely human and have it not be sinful. Who, pastor? When? Tell me, who and when can you have human beings who are completely human and yet without sin? There are three examples in the scriptures. Three examples in God's word of human beings who are fully human and without sin. Example number one, Adam and Eve. Two whole chapters of two human beings who are made up of two parts, the material and the immaterial, and yet they are without sin. You see, we have subtly bought the lies of Apollinarius that to be fully human is to be sinful. But Adam and Eve show us that prior to the fall, prior to their sin and rebellion against God, they show us that you can be a fully human being and not be sinful. Example number two, our future resurrected bodies. Our future hope is that one day we will be resurrected and be fully human and never sin. Why do we think that to be fully human is to be sinful? Let me ask you, what do you plan on being for eternity? An angel in the clouds playing a harp? You will be a human being for eternity. You will be a human being for eternity and you will have eyeballs and ears and a nose and big toes and armpits and shins and buttocks. And if you don't like that, then you have a problem with your anthropology. You do not understand humanity. And it's also a problem with your theology. Human beings are wonderful creatures. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. That's what Moses is doing in Genesis chapter 2. He is highlighting the creation of mankind by showing that human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. Saturn is cool, the Milky Way is cool, whales are cool, elephants are cool, tigers are cool, bearded vultures are cool, but they all get trumped. By humans. Human beings are the highlight of God's creation. But we go to the zoo and we pay money to stare at a giraffe with a crooked neck and gorillas and elephants and flamingos, and all the while we are surrounded by other human beings who are the pinnacle of God's creation. You can come here to church every week and be surrounded by living things called human beings who are the pinnacle of God's creation. Look around. We ought to start charging you money like the zoo to come here every week and look at each other. We ought to start charging you money to come here every week to be around other human beings who are the highlight of God's creation. 
human beings are the highlight of God's creation. And the psalmist declares this in Psalm 139, which keep in mind is post fall, post-sin entering this world. He is writing after the fact that Adam had sinned and messed up this world. Psalm 139, look at verses 13 and 16 with me. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. When the psalmist says here in Psalm 139, wonderful are your works, he is talking about how God created human beings. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. Understand that the psalmist did not get get in a time machine and go back to the Garden of Eden before Adam sinned and then write this. He did not hop in this time machine and go back in time before Adam sinned and jump out and say, Adam, I'm from the future. I'm just like you except that I'm broken and sick with sin. Sin dehumanized me. Your sin dehumanized me. But let me observe you, Adam. The pinnacle of creation. Let me watch you for a while, and I'll get out my pen and paper and write a song about you that I'm going to title Psalm 139. No, the psalmist in Psalm 139 is talking about fallen, sinful humanity, and he's saying that human beings are the pinnacle of creation. Sure, the psalmist, he will tell you, sin dehumanized you but he would also tell you that you are the pinnacle of God's creation because you are a human being made in the image of God even though you're broken, broken by Adam's sin. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, so much so that Jesus became one of them and lived as one of them. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, so much so that Jesus became one of them and lived as one of them and died as one of them. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, so much so that Jesus became one of them, lived as one of them, died as one of them, and came back from the dead as one of them. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, so much so that Jesus became one of them, lived as one of them, died as as one of them, came back from the dead as one of them, and will be one of them forever in a glorified body. And Jesus is going to do the same for you. That's how important human beings are to God. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation. And that's why we're against abortion and slavery 
and prostitution and child abuse and human trafficking and homosexuality and sexual immorality. We are against these things because human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. Listen, Grace, Sanctity of Life Sunday is every Sunday at Grace. We don't just celebrate it on the third Sunday of January. Every Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday at Grace because human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. And unfortunately, our media wants nothing to do with an abortion trial that's happening in Philadelphia where workers admitted that aborted babies came out alive and they snipped their necks and they screamed and and thrashed about on the table. And so the trial up there, it's been reported that where the press sits, the benches are basically empty in the courtroom. And someone asked the reporter, why is this so? And they said, if you were pro-choice, you do not want this information out in the media. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation, and that's why we are against abortion. Jesus became a human being and was resurrected as a human being, and Jesus will be a human being forever, and he will do the same thing for you. Yet, some Christians just can't wait to get out of their body and become non-human. So many Christians hate their bodies. They're functional Gnostics. They embrace dualism like the Gnostics of the second century. They say, my body is bad. My spirit is good. Just get me out of my body. Let my spirit free. Let me float out there in the heavens somewhere. For some Christians, their view of salvation is their dehumanization. They don't want to be human forever because they have made this terrible connection between sin and humanity. They have made this terrible assumption that to be human is to be sinful. Some Christians think that the human body is to blame for sin. And in order to experience salvation, they must get out of the body But that's not Christian. It is absurd to think this way because you are going to be a human being for eternity whether you believe in Jesus or not. And if you don't believe in Jesus, and I pray that you do even right now, then you will be resurrected. Your spirit will come back together with your body and you will spend eternity in hell suffering torment as a fully complete human being. But for the Christians, you are going to be a human being forever too. You will be made up of the two parts as all human beings are, the material and the immaterial, the body and the spirit. But you will be a human being for eternity under the sanctifying power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You will be a human being forever in a human, fleshy, flesh and blood, glorified, resurrected body that has eyes and ears and nose and hair and big toes and kneecaps and thumbs and intestines and armpits and butt. You will be fully human and without sin. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait. I can't wait to see some of you this way because some of you really bother me. Some of you get on my nerves and I struggle to love you 
but you won't bother me or get on my nerves after the resurrection because I'll be fully human and without sin. And because I'll be fully human and without sin, then that means I won't bother any of you or get on your nerves for eternity, even though I do that now. Imagine that. There will be a version of Benji Magnus that won't bother you or get on your nerves. And everyone who lives in my house said, Amen. And so did the church staff. Wait a minute. If any staff member said amen, then we are having a meeting next week. (laughs) For eternity, Christians will be fully human and without sin. I cannot wait. I cannot wait because sin dehumanized me and sin dehumanized you. But there's another example in Scripture of someone who is fully human and without sin. Example number three is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus was like us in every respect, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 14 to 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is the premier example of someone being fully human and without sin. And so Apollinarius in the 4th century can't come to grips with the fact that Jesus could be fully human. For Apollinarius to be fully human means to be sinful. Jesus had to be dehumanized for Apollinarius. Apollinarius had to get rid of a part of Jesus' humanity in order for God to be compatible with him, in order for the incarnation to take place. Apollinarius believed that Jesus was 100% God, but that Jesus was only 50% human. Apollinarius believed that absolutely Jesus was 100% God, but he was half human. Apollinarius believed that Jesus was just 50% human. He believed that Jesus had the physical, material part of humanity. But Apollinarius believed that Jesus lacked the immaterial part of humanity, the human spirit or soul. Apollinarius believed that Christ was the word become flesh, but not the word become human. Apollinarius had to get rid of a part of Jesus' humanity in order for the incarnation to take place. And so after some debate, debate, the theories of Apollinarius were rejected as heresy and not compatible with Orthodox Christianity and Orthodox Christology. They told Apollinarius, your teachings are not in line with the teachings that we have received from the apostles and the prophets as recorded in God's holy word. His teachings were first rejected by a number of bishops and leading synods and then eventually by the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D. Understand this, Grace. Salvation is not your dehumanization. Salvation is your humanization. You are already dehumanized. Sin dehumanized you. Sin dehumanized you when Adam sinned. 
But Jesus comes as the God-man and obeys fully where Adam failed. And Jesus humanizes us again through salvation, through that new creation that he starts when you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit that will finally culminate one day in resurrection and glorification. So that means until then, no one here is authentically human. None of us knows what it means to be authentically human. We don't know what it means to be fully human right now. We only know humanity in its corrupt, fallen, broken, afflicted by sin condition. We only know what it is to be a human being that is wrecked by the perversity of sin. We don't know what it is to be really human, but we will one day. One day, we will know what it is like to be a real human being. One day, for eternity, we'll actually be what we were made by God to be, human without sin. Can you believe it? One day, Christians will finally be fully human. Fully human without sin. I don't know about you, but I can't wait because I think about it every day because all I know in this body is sin. Salvation is not your dehumanization. Salvation is not getting your spirit out of your human body. Salvation is your humanization. Salvation is the hope that one day God will resurrect your body and your spirit, which has been with Jesus when you died, Christian, will come back together to be a human being forever in a glorified body to live on the new earth. Or if you're alive when Jesus returns, the hope of your salvation is that you'll be transformed in an instant. So don't hate your body, Grace. You are wonderfully made by God. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. And one day this verse out of Philippians 3 will be your reality. It's a promise that you can bank on now. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. One day, Jesus will return and complete and bring to fulfillment the salvation process that he started in us when he regenerated us by the Spirit as we heard the gospel message. One day, we will be human like Jesus. We will be fully human and yet without sin. I cannot wait because all I know is sin in this body. But one day, I will be like him. And so can you. If you turn from your sin and rebellion and trust in the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. Until then, until that day when we are resurrected or until that day we are transformed if we're alive when Jesus returns. Until then, how do we live in this broken world that Adam messed up? How do we live in this broken world that Adam messed up even though Jesus has started the salvation process, the recreation process? How do we live now when we get sick and and cancer affects bodies and people die and people get blown up and there's abortion? How do we live in this world with all of these afflictions? We let these afflictions get eclipsed by one glance 
of Christ's glory, by rehearsing the gospel, by looking again to Jesus Christ, the God-man, that God made him to be sin for us, even though he didn't know any sin, so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. You rehearse the gospel and you tell yourself, God loves me no matter what is happening in my life. I live in a broken world. I'm experiencing pain and heartache, but God loves me. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Beloved children, Paul says, which means God loves you as if you were his one and only child. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Look to Jesus and you will see that God loves you in the midst of a fallen, broken world. Hang on to that hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the salvation process that you've started for many of us here. Some people haven't. Would you regenerate them and make them alive now as they think about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for them, being raised from the dead, living for them, for those of us who have experienced the new birth, God, would you turn our affections once again to see your Son? Would you cause the Holy Spirit to inflame the embers of our heart, to blow on them that we would love you as we see how much you love us? The afflictions, Father, that weigh us down, may they be eclipsed by one glance of your glory. All the regrets that we have of failing you, of sin and disobedience, God, may they all fly away when we think about how merciful and gracious you are to us in your son Jesus. Do it now by the power of the Spirit for our joy, for the glory of Jesus' kingdom. In his name we pray, amen.